Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, have you checked out the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist Patreon page? Patreon is a marvelous site that allows creators to be supported by their audience, you. We have some ocean-tastic categories for you to join, from foundational phytoplankton, integral reef, and enigmatic sea turtle. There are some exciting bonuses in there, including shout-outs on the podcast and bonus episodes that just won't be shared anywhere else. Your support helps to create more episodes about ocean science and conservation. For more information on how you can become an official member of the Marine BioLife pod, please visit patreon.com backslash marinebiolife. Hello, pirates, mermaids, and all denizens of the deep. Today, I am chatting with Dr. Catherine McDonald, a.k.a. Dr. Kat Mack, who is a marine biologist, professor, and founder of the Field School. The Field School is a marine biology immersion course conducted aboard a research vessel where students can get a hands-on, boot-sweat experience and really get to know what it takes to be a field marine biologist. Today, we get into why Catherine felt that there was a need in the marine bio world for the field school, as well as some of the novel research that's coming out of the program. Catherine has traveled around the world, initially as a Thomas J. Watson Fellow, a program that shifted the course of her life, or at least the studies of her life, from history to science. Her PhD research studies the interactions between humans and wildlife, and if there is such a thing as sustainable tourism, something that we talk about on today's show. We also chat about Catherine's philosophies on internships, best methods of shipboard communication, and she shares some of her more entertaining field stories. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Catherine McDonald. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So one of my favorite questions to ask people, and I usually save it for the end of the episode, but I'm going to ask it now. What's your favorite sea creature and why? Ooh, tough one. Uh, I'm very partial to the blue shark, um, in part because I, I feel like I owe them a, a debt. I once threw up on one, my only seasickness experience ever. Um, <laughs> and so I still feel indebted, but, uh, I'm also a big fan of nurse sharks, uh, just on the basis of being animals that, uh, don't have the big teeth, but absolutely have the warrior's heart. They do. They're very charismatic, aren't they? Yeah, although I don't feel like they get as much credit for that as they deserve. That's very true. You see a lot of nurse sharks in your work? Uh, A fair number. My my master's student uh, is working on nurse shark, juvenile nurse shark stress physiology. Uh, Mm -hmm. So nurse sharks have this reputation as sort of um, tanks of the ocean who are essentially unharmed by interactions with fishing gear. Uh, And for adults, we know that they're quite hardy to stress, Um, Mm -hmm. but it's much less studied for juveniles who are actually more likely to interact with recreational fishers because they spend so much time close to shore. That makes sense. Is that why you had a juvenile nurse shark? I saw your Instagram post. You you named him Bone Crusher, and he was the smallest nurse shark that you had ever caught, which I thought was absolutely hilarious. She was amazing. She was 38 centimeters long. She had a nine centimeter girth. She was so tiny, um, but we did not catch her on a hook. I just, I just snorkeled over her and managed to nab her in a hand net. 
Um, so that was amazing. Uh, we don't get a lot of nurse sharks in a size class that small. So she provides really important data on what those tiny guys are eating and up to and all that kind of stuff. How does a Jersey girl end up as marine biologist? That is a great question. Um, although I will say some of the best marine scientists I know come from the Midwest. So, uh, it doesn't matter where you're from, follow your dreams. Uh, I, I grew up in New Jersey, but my great grandparents lived in coastal South Carolina. So I spent summers down there as a kid. And I think that's really where I first felt like the ocean was something I was really excited about. That makes sense. South Carolina is beautiful. Yeah. No, I still have a real soft spot for those salt marshes. (laughs) Was there a specific creature that you kind of found that piqued your interest while you were down there or just kind of being around the ocean? Just you knew this is it. Uh, I must have been seven or eight and uh, somebody caught a bonnet head on a, Mm. you know, sort of land based shark fisherman. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't think he was actually targeting sharks, though. He didn't seem ready for this little bonnet head. Um, And there was sort of this panic on the beach that, like, there's a shark in there with our children and. (laughs) this thing was like maybe two and a half feet long. Um, And I, it really made an impression on me in terms of uh, popping me at a very young age out of that sense that sharks are dangerous or um, that I should be worried about what they could do to me. You know, it was very clear to me that if someone was in trouble in this situation, it was that little shark that was now on the sand. Um, Right. And so to be honest, that's, pretty much how I see them today, even though uh, many of the sharks I work with now are quite a lot bigger than that. Yeah, that would absolutely make a huge impression as a child. So you continue going to South Carolina, and then you decided to attend Amherst University. Did you know you wanted to be a marine biologist when you made your schooling choice? I did not. Um, okay. I When I was a little kid, I, I told my dad that I either wanted to be a marine biologist or I wanted to clean the shark tank at SeaWorld. Um, (laughs) And he was like, you know, dream a little bigger than cleaning shark tanks. Uh, But by the time I went to college, the the best classes I took in high school were mostly not um, science related. Uh, I had at best, I would say, a mediocre relationship with science coming out of high school. Uh, And I'm naturally quite a reader and uh, I have strong critical thinking skills. And so that drew me more to humanities uh, mm. courses. It, unsurprisingly, those same skills are pretty much equally valuable no matter what you want to do. Um, so listeners, read things, think about them critically. It will come in handy. It doesn't matter what you wind up doing. Uh, <laughs> Very true. But um, I was a history major in undergrad. Hmm. And I didn't go in planning to do that either. I just took a history class with a really great professor and uh, fell in love. Fascinating. Holy cow. Okay. So how did you go from history to, I mean, you were a Thomas Watson fellow mm-hmm. and went during your travels. I mean, you traveled quite a bit, Bahama, South Africa, Mozam, Australia, Malaysia, I mean, that's all over. So how did kind of all those travels work with your degree? Uh, So the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship is a year-long independent research fellowship. Uh, 
that uh, potential fellows uh, sort of propose a project. And the Watson is different from most fellowships available to recent graduates because usually your fellowship is directly related to the work you've done. So I did my undergraduate thesis on gravestones in the Connecticut River Valley. Um, and I, I wow. and I applied for a Fulbright after graduation to continue working on gravestones in the Caribbean, uh, looking at sort of the influence of the slave trade on funerary practices. Uh, so clearly I was a super nerd no matter what I was studying. Um, <laughs> Dive right into yeah. it. It's good. But then the grants officer at my school said, you, you should look at the Watson Fellowship. And I looked at it. And basically, its requirement for applying is that your application can't have anything to do either with what you've studied in the past or what you necessarily plan to do in the future. Interesting. So I was like, if I could do... So they just want you totally carte blanche, plan a year to study something you have no idea about in countries that you've never been Absolutely. in. Absolutely. Go. Yeah. And uh, the idea being that it's going to shape you as a person, teach you self-reliance um, and sort of ask more of you than a normal academic trajectory would, which I think is 100 percent true. Yes, absolutely. It would. I mean, travel does that anyway. And then you throw, you know, those extra parameters in the mix. So, absolutely. So I thought about, you know, if I if I could do anything in the world. Uh, that I'm completely unqualified to do at this stage in my life, what would it be? Um, and I decided that it would be sharks because that was the thing that when I was a little kid, I was really into, you know, I carried around the book from my elementary school library till it fell apart. And um, <laughs> I, uh, so I applied and I did not expect to win one, uh, but I did. And so I did a year long research project on sharks. I met a ton of shark scientists. I learned a lot. Um, you know, I have all of these kids who are in their early 20s that come to learn from me who say, oh, I feel like I'm behind. I feel like I should have more experience. I should know more. You know, I was 22 when I started my fellowship and I had never been scuba diving. I'd never touched a shark. I didn't, I didn't know anything. Um, so it's also, you don't have to have everything planned out. You don't have to be headed in one clear direction your whole life to wind up somewhere amazing. And in fact, I would say that the diversity of things that I've done has really contributed to my being the professional that I am today. There's value in being a well-rounded human being. I think it makes you just more universally relatable as well, instead of just being, you know, niched down into one very specific field. Yeah, absolutely. But also things I've learned in other places have turned out to apply to the work that I do today. Mm-hmm. It's funny how that works out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, so I found out later uh, from a different Watson Fellow that one of the goals of the Watson Fellowship is actually just to knock fellows off the ladder. Uh, on the theory that, you know, if you are a high achieving student in undergrad and you go right on to grad school, you know, your whole life is kind of laid out for you. You're not mm -hmm. challenged really in a meaningful way. Um, and so part of what they wanted to do was like, A, give you this really perspective changing experience, but also B, 
at least require you to use the activation energy to, to go back to what you were doing before, rather than just defaulting to the sort of simplest thing that's in front of you. Yeah. And it kind of develops this muscle of being able to start over and which is a skill to be able to be like, I know nothing. Let me ask all the questions. I think a lot of people are very afraid to ask questions. And when you're expected to know nothing, it's easier to do that. Yeah. So, well, and people think that um, needing to ask is a sign of weakness, but in reality, not being willing to ask is the real sign of weakness. Really cool experience. So while you were traveling this year, I mean, so the Watson Fellow, they have very strict guidelines. Like you have to be completely out of the U.S. for an entire year. You can't even like come visit, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Um, I kind of like that. So while you were gone traveling, is that when you got your dive certification? Yes, absolutely. During my during my first stop in the Bahamas, I got dive certified. Um, I spent some time at Bimini Biological Field Station, Shark Lab in Bimini, Bahamas, um, which is where I I got my early training in shark handling and that kind of thing. Um, And that's where you got dive certified? No, I got certified in Nassau, the capital of the Bahamas. Mm Mm-hmm. So you just have the best world-class diving is your first diving experience. What was it like after that? (laughs) Uh, I mean... I, I've pretty much never met a dive site that I didn't like, although I don't think that I have the appreciation for beautiful tropical waters that folks who were trained in, you know, a quarry in Illinois have, um, because right. I just, I basically haven't had that experience. Why would I possibly go to Illinois and jump into a quarry? Uh, right. But, uh, but I do, I have students and colleagues who did their training in that way. And I think they, they do bring a unique appreciation for uh, those beautiful, warm, tropical waters. All right. So you're in the Bahamas. You went to the Shark Lab. South Africa, I'm assuming you went to the KwaZulu-Natal uh, Shark Board? I did. Um, I spent most of my time in South Africa in Cape Town. Uh, I was really okay. interested in sort of issues of how uh, white sharks and human communities interact. Um, we've got some interesting mm-hmm. stuff happening right now with that in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just talked to the Boston Herald two days ago about it. Um, it's, it's always a challenge to figure out how to balance the needs of nature with the needs of human populations. Um, and so I, what I'm not familiar, what happened in Massachusetts? Uh, so they had a fatal attack by a great white. I, I mean, and I should preface saying that by saying that attack is not the preferred term used by the scientific community, uh, bite or interaction. Uh, is better mm-hmm. um, because attack sort of assumes a certain amount of intention on the part of the shark that I think is rarely actually there. Uh, right. But colloquially, the, the way that people talk about these things, the term that's usually used is attack. So I, I use it right. here advisedly. Um, <laughs> but there was there was a man boogie boarding who was killed there last year uh, mm. in an unfortunate interaction with a great white. And okay. um this summer, they've been closing beaches when white sharks are sighted in an effort to reduce interactions. Um, mm-hmm. And there are sort of, broadly speaking, two strategies for managing human-shark interactions. One of them is to try to change the behavior of the humans, and the other is to try to change the behavior of the sharks. Um, right. And normally, although not always, the second involves killing sharks, um, which is what the sharks board does they they net the beaches um 
-hmm. often swimmers think that this net is a physical barrier that prevents sharks from approaching the beach. But in reality, it's, it's a fishing tool that reduces shark mm -hmm. populations in the area to reduce the risk of swimmer interaction with animals. Um, or in Western Australia, they've drumlined in recent years to reduce populations. Um, and it, the, the alternative is reducing the risk by changing what humans do. And in Cape Town, the way that they do that is they have a shark spotting program. Uh, a lot of mm -hmm. their beaches are cliff front. You know, they, they have cliffs right behind the beach. And so they have spotters mm -hmm. up on the cliffs looking for white sharks. And when they see one, they pull people out of the water and close the beach. Um, right. And the big question there is really whether people are willing to tolerate the inconvenience of living in a world that's wild. You know, we can mm -hmm. we can turn the ocean into a swimming pool. We know how to do it. We have the technology. Um, so it's really just, are, are we willing to believe that other beings have a right to be on this planet? Are we willing to be inconvenienced? Are we willing to get out of the water if that's what we need to do? I can see how this kind of paved the way for your PhD thesis work. You you studied a lot of human wildlife interactions. I really like what you just said. Are we willing to live in in the wild, essentially, and accept that there is wildlife there? So I've been I've been to Cape Town and I've seen the the cliffs and like the shark programs and they have the different flags that, you know, kind of show which, if it's safe to go in the water, you know, the white flag's safe. And then there's red or black flags. I forget which color it is that like you don't go in the water. Um, so it's really interesting to see the different interactions, which is something kind of, I wanted to chat about, but I will circle back to that. So what, what was Australia like then? Were you looking at the drum lines? Uh, no, they hadn't actually happened there yet when I was there. Um, okay. that they, they introduced drumline fishing in response to a string of serious or fatal, uh, human shark interactions. Uh, mm -hmm. and typically when, when an area starts looking at those kinds of solutions, it's in response to some really unfortunate, um, events. It's not something that places typically just decide they're going to do for fun. Um, mm -hmm. but where your economy is reliant on beach tourism, um, there are real meaningful economic impacts of um, those kinds of events. I can see that. And that makes sense. So I, I read, I read part of your thesis. Oh my goodness. Um, I'm sorry. No, I actually was like, this is actually really interesting. It's probably the, I mean, right. I went to school for biology, but I mean, reading science stuff can be really hard, but I actually found yours very easy to read. It was good. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so something I thought was really interesting was the Jaws effect. That's something that kind of gets brought up a lot with human shark interactions is that it's kind of blamed on Jaws. Like people are afraid of sharks because of Jaws. And one of the things that your paper highlighted is that it's not always because of Jaws. It can be because of something that actually happened. So in South Africa, the shark board was more or less founded in response to these shark attacks that happened in the late fifties that it was what black December and it killed five people between in like a matter of a hundred days mm -hmm. and people were leaving the beach in droves and hotels were freaking out. And this happened before uh, jaws happened. Yeah. Absolutely. So are there other examples of this? I mean, the thing that yes uh, is the short answer. I mean, 
mm-hmm. they weren't drumlining in Western Australia when Jaws came out. They didn't start in response to, you know, media coverage of shark risk. They started in response to an actual series of attacks. I think the same thing is true uh, in New South Wales, in Australia. Um, and uh, for a time, Hawaii had some uh, similar programming. And I think that that was also in response to a series of attacks, although I'm not as well versed in the Hawaii example. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I don't doubt and I, I completely agree with people who say Jaws affects the way that people see sharks. Uh, I mean, and mm-hmm. the whole string of shark movies that kind of trades on our, fear, our fears and, you know, blood in the water and that kind of stuff. Um, you yeah. know, it's not that those don't have an effect. It's not that they don't matter. But I don't think that they're the only thing that shape the way that we think about these kinds of problems. Uh, you know, Jaws hasn't gone away. I don't think that a significantly smaller percentage of the population has seen Jaws today than saw it back then. But you see these very strong new cultural narratives that are much more focused around the conservation threats that sharks face and, you know, more generally around threats to our oceans and and changes in their condition related to ocean acidification, to climate change, to overfishing. Um Mm-hmm. that weren't on our cultural radar then. I mean, in, in the 50s even, fisheries scientists were saying things like, it is impossible to exhaust the number of fish in the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's really only in the last 30, 40 years that we've started to see ourselves having this incredible impact Um And so what that chapter of my dissertation found was that um, the way that people talk about sharks tracks much more closely with changes in the environmental movement more broadly um, than Mm -hmm. it does with the introduction of Jaws. Makes sense. I mean, and and I guess what I would say is that, you know, it also kind of pushes you not to accept simple answers. You know, our relationship with sharks is much more complicated than one movie. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's those critical thinking skills again. Yeah, they always do come up. (laughs) What happens at the end of your fellowship? I'm like endlessly fascinated by this fellowship. I hadn't heard of it before. Yeah. And I think it's a really cool concept. So you wrap up your year. Do you have a paper that you have to like defend more or less? You present at a returning fellows conference. Uh, Okay. So the year that I returned, it was hosted at Swanee, the University of the South in Tennessee, somewhere I had never been. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I wound up because of some flight delays having to go directly there from Malaysia. Uh, And so I was extremely jet lagged by the time I actually got there. Um, But it was very interesting to just encounter the diversity of what fellows had done. I mean, and it was everything from, you know, my year, there was a fellow studying football hooliganism, um, you know, related to soccer. What does that mean? He, he was, he was sort of studying like acts of acts of violence and social aggression associated with um, soccer in Europe and South America. Okay. Uh, there was somebody studying the bushmeat trade in Africa. There was somebody who was studying flamenco dancing. Um, there was a girl who had been an undergrad in chemistry who did her project on uh, the xylophone, I think. 
Wow. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's very, it's very interesting to see all of these smart driven people who've done something completely outside their comfort zone for a year, kind of come back and talk about that experience and what they learned. Yeah. That's really, really incredible. Really neat. I mean, I love it. So the main thing that I think it gave me really, uh, is comfort with discomfort. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I learned how to do things that felt hard or overwhelming or frightening to me, uh, in a way Mm -hmm. that I had not been challenged to do before. So what were some of the skills that you learned while you were abroad and expect, like, what was one or two things that really kind of pushed you outside of your comfort zone as far as, I mean, just traveling and or interacting with sharks? Um, I mean, some of it is, is sort of personal life lessons, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm a moderately reserved person in my private life. You know, I, I have no problem. I've never been shy of public speaking. I, I'm a professor, so I have no problem getting up in front of a classroom <laughs> of students and talking their ears off, to be perfectly honest. Um, <laughs> but I found being by myself in all of these strange places, literally landing in a country and knowing not one person in that country. Um, Mm -hmm. And this was before social media. uh, And, and I didn't have a cell phone. I mean, it was, they existed in the U S but the kind of international cell phone travel you can do today was not a thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it was this experience of really being totally alone. And if you need something or you want to connect with another human being, you have to put yourself out there. And mm-hmm. um, that was very uncomfortable for 22-year-old Catherine. Uh, <laughs> but it was also definitely very good for her. Uh, and it it informs my ability today to work with fishermen and, and um, sort of just be willing to go up and talk to people when that's not necessarily a built-in part of my nature. So how did you get involved with the University of Miami? Uh, so after I finished my fellowship year, I I wasn't really ready to get back on the ladder, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. So I spent a year working in wild bird rescue, uh, okay. I, which is where I learned how to take a hook out of a pelican's stomach using just my bare hand and a tub of Vaseline. Um, oh, my gosh. You actually push your whole hand down a pelican's throat. You sure do. The least invasive wow. way to get that hook back out. Do you have a video of that? Thankfully, no. <laughs> you don't. You don't want to see how violated a pelican can look. Oh my gosh! But sadly, I'm sure that's kind of a common occurrence for people to have to do. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, okay. It, it taught me a lot about seabirds. It taught me a lot about animal handling. It was a very fascinating and eye-opening experience, particularly since you're interacting with animals who have uh, sort of run right into problems with humans for the most part. Most of the animals that we treated, you know, had interacted with fishing gear, had hit power lines, had been hit by a car, you know, sometimes had been shot by a BB gun. Um, Mm. And so it really gives you a sense of the edges at which the human world and the natural world interact and or clash. Um, and I spent two years working on a swim with dolphins boat, uh, out of Bimini, Mm, which is where I learned to free dive before I was kind of ready to settle down a little bit more. 
and I I applied both to I applied to four graduate programs. Um, the two most exciting graduate programs, in my opinion, in the country and history, and the two most exciting graduate programs in interdisciplinary environmental studies. Um, mm. And I got into my top choice in each. Uh, and I wound up feeling like as much as I love history, and I still do, I'm still a huge uh, early American history nerd. Um, I, I felt like what I, what I needed to do was the task that was more timely. Um, and, and to me, that was marine conservation. So you wound up at UM. I sure did. You bring up a lot of, you know, the interactions with human and wildlife and kind of those edges. Um, in your thesis, you kind of talked a little bit about ecotourism, which is always lauded about like kind of this wonderful thing. Like, look, we can go out and see these animals in their natural habitat um, without, you know, actually catching them or disturbing them. And it's always viewed as like the preferred method and it brings in money for places that may or may not have a you know, sustainable income. But some of your research kind of found, or not, your paper kind of talk, talked about it wasn't, it's not always as sustainable as we think. So example was like howler monkeys climb higher up in the trees um, to kind of get away from humans or whales are leaving areas frequented by tour boats. Um, are there are there true sustainable ecotourism interactions with wild animals? I, I mean, or what does a sustainable tourism look like to you? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I spend a lot of my time thinking about these topics. Uh, a lot of my work is, does deal with marine tourism. Um, mm -hmm. And it's really tricky. I, I mean, I went into my PhD so excited about the potential of ecotourism to lead to conservation outcomes, right? right. Um, because basically in environmental science, there's not very many win-wins. Um, and I guess what I would say is bring those critical thinking skills to bear. Um, <laughs> there's almost always trade-offs. It's almost always complicated. If something seems really simple and obvious, you probably don't fully understand it yet. Um, I would definitely <laughs> say that about myself and tourism, you know, as a very, like, very early career environmental scientist. Okay. Um, for instance, you know, there's a strong argument that you can take local fishermen and create opportunities for them to become tour operators. And instead of killing sharks, they take people to see them. <laughs> and, yes, I actually had somebody on the podcast that is doing just that. Yeah, I, I mean, and in theory, that sounds great. And in practice, it's probably great in some places. But mm -hmm. every place doesn't draw large numbers of tourists. Every tourist doesn't right. want to swim with sharks. There are right. market incentives and market limitations that mean that this is an approach that may work in some places, but probably won't work in others. Here in the U.S., shark feeding tourism is uh, legally banned in Florida and in Hawaii um, because of the potential risk to beachgoers uh, of mm -hmm. habituating sharks to associate humans in the water with food. Um, mm -hmm. You can debate, and it's very much scientifically an open question, whether that really represents a risk. Um, but it limits the potential of tourism in, in places like that. Right. 
Uh, Absolutely. And then the other question is that you, you sort of have to think about not only what are the total benefits, but who receives them. Um, so a lot of papers have come out in recent years arguing sharks are worth more alive than dead. And in some cases that might be true, but part of the question there is like worth what to who? <laughs> so if you're a fisherman, you may or may not have the scientific skills, the language skills in many parts of the world, um, the boat, the safety equipment, the know-how, the marketing ability to actually sell yourself as a tour operator, right? That, that may be a thing that's completely unfeasible for you. In St. Vincent, right. where I do a lot of my fisheries work, the average fisherman, if he has a boat at all, his boat is about 16 feet long and made of wood. Um, there's just not ideal for taking tourists. Exactly. Um, I mean, and you know, Vincentians have the advantage of, of being English speaking, but there are, Mm -hmm. there are many, many parts of the world with amazing shark populations where people don't typically speak English. Um, Mm -hmm. so the people who are most likely to benefit from tourism are usually already the more prosperous members of the community. The people who have Mm -hmm. an education to be able to offer the kinds of information that tourists want, the people who have the language skills to communicate with Western tourists, the people who have the money to develop the kinds of facilities or vessels that tourists would expect. Um, And so in at least some cases, you're taking work, fishing, away from often the poorest members of community and giving the economic opportunity represented by tourism to already privileged members of the community. So even if the total benefit of tourism is larger than the total benefit of fishing, like who receives it really affects its impact on the community. And it's not impossible to try to counteract some of those problems. Uh, You know, uh, in in Fiji, some of the shark dive tourism operators charge a reef tax that compensates um, local villages that have traditional fishing rights on the reefs that are used for shark dives uh, for not fishing there. But, mm. but for that to be effective, it depends on there being traditional ownership of those resources that is partitioned in space. You, you know, you have to be right. able to identify mm. the people entitled to those animals in order to compensate them. Right. And that's not available everywhere. So that's a unique situation. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's not that tourism can't play a role in conservation, uh, particularly mm. well-managed, highly educational tourism. It's just that mm we shouldn't assume from that that all tourism does. Makes sense. You kind of touched on some of your research down in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and that's related to your current, well, one of your current positions um, at the field school as director. I want, I definitely want to chat quite a bit about the field school. It's a hands-on interactive experience for anybody that wants to get a feel for what being a marine biologist is like, and it's fantastic. So how did the field school get started? So while I was a grad student, I was the intern coordinator for the Shark Research and Conservation Program at the University of Miami. So Mm -hmm. I did all of the hiring and training for their undergraduate interns and, you know, taught their graduate student interns um, sort of how to work with and handle sharks. And Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I found was that I was getting emails from all over the country, sometimes from all over the world, asking me to take on interns. You know, I'm I'm 35, but this is my dream. 
you know, or, <laughs> or I go to the University of Madrid, but this is my dream. Or I go to the University of California, but this is my dream. And un quite understandably, you know, the University of Miami is, is there to make these opportunities available to their students. Um, but I, I also would have students ask me in the summer, you know, where can I go for a good shark internship? And there are a few great places to send them. Um, but I'd had many students go to internships that sounded really cool and come back and say, you know, it's not that I didn't have fun, but I mostly, you know, helped clean or I mostly entered data or, you know, I, I felt like I was just there as a tourist. Mm -hmm. um, and there's they weren't getting the hands-on experience that they envisioned. Yeah. And there's nothing really wrong with that. If you go into it mm -hmm. with, you know, re like the right expectation, if places are advertising themselves as, you know, you're going to be supporting research and you're going to be doing data entry and you're going to get to, you know, go out in the field a few times. I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that, but, right. um, but there was a real, dearth, there was a real dearth of opportunities that would teach kids how to actually do science. Um, and in general, as a university professor, like that's not what you're rewarded for. The things that <laughs> your bosses are looking at to evaluate your performance are how much are you publishing? How much grant money are you bringing in? And do your students hate you? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, because if students are lukewarm on you, they probably don't really care. The, the thing that they care about is, is whether they're getting complaints. Okay. Um, and so really none of those things ask you to to do much teaching in the field and the less time you spend in the field honestly probably the more successful you are because time you spend in the field is time you're not writing papers or grant applications i know i would be a more productive scientist uh if i spent less time in the field well and my particular career and my particular goals don't ask me to publish the maximum amount of papers physically possible um but for most academic scientists that's the reality and so as someone who was a good field scientist and who liked teaching those skills, I felt like students could use the kinds of opportunities that um, I could help create. And I also mm -hmm. have found marine science can sometimes be a bit exploitive of students. Um, I mean, I'm sure you've encountered lots of pay to volunteer internships and things like that. Um, oh, yes, absolutely. And the quality of them and the experience that students get out of them is so variable. You know, there are mm. probably some that are great and are definitely worth the money. Um, right. But it's definitely not all of them. And usually, you know, students looking for paid internships in marine science. I mean, let me know if you find one. But my students typically don't. They, they're very right. few and far between. Um, because... Because professors on tight budgets aren't going to pay a student to do something that another student will happily do for free. Right. Um, but that can sometimes feel a little exploitive to me. Uh, you know, I've, mm -hmm. I've seen students treated in ways that I wasn't very happy with um, mm. in my career. And I, I wanted to kind of be part of the change that I wanted to see. Um, both on that mm -hmm. and on uh, female representation in shark science. Love it. Yeah. So uh, the American Elasmobranch Society, which is the professional association of shark scientists, uh, you know, our our graduate student membership is something like 60 or 70 percent women. Um, 
But at the senior scientist level, people with tenure, I think we have two or three tenured female scientists and, and the rest are men. Um, okay, so change is coming. <laughs> and I would say I've, I've seen it in the 10 years that I've been in the field. Uh, I, you know, I, I've already seen that needle start to move. But women don't always get credit as good field scientists. And um, I think that that needs to change. And you're doing something about it. Well, trying to. You're seeing all these things and you want to be able to, to provide this opportunity for people that are emailing you saying, I want an internship in some way, shape or form. And that's kind of where the field school was born. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I realized that if I wanted to, if I wanted to really control the experience that students were having, I needed to be answering to myself. Um, and so I came together with two of my friends who are fantastic scientists and we founded field school and other uh, are five of us now, but I've, I've never, ever regretted it, even at the most terrifying and exhausting moment. And you bought your own research vessel. I just think that's so cool. We sure did. We bought her and we rebuilt her from the ground up. Oh, man, that's a big project. It, it is probably the biggest single project we've ever undertaken in our lives. <laughs> so tell me, the Garvin? Gavin? Garvin, yeah. The Garvin. So tell me about the Garvin. It's a giant research boat that you can live on for a week. Yeah, she's a 55-foot uh, custom. She was built as a dive liveaboard. Uh, and mm -hmm. she spent her early years mostly doing wreck diving up in um, cold waters off New York. Mm. Uh, change of pace. Yeah. And uh, when her previous captain passed away, uh, his children weren't going to continue operating her as a, as a commercial dive boat, which was what she had been doing. Um, mm -hmm. And we had decided about a year before she went on the market that we wanted to do this, but that we needed to take our time and really find the right vessel. Um, mm. So she has seven cabins, uh, sleeps a maximum of 12 students plus our, our five crew. She's not the most beautiful vessel on earth, maybe to everybody, but she certainly is to me. <laughs> and she's gotten to do some quite amazing things uh, in the time that we've had her. Uh, she was the mothership in Andros for the first ever recorded wild sawfish birth. Um, that was with Dean Grubbs out of FSU, Dr. Dean Grubbs. Oh, my God. Um, she was filming for Shark Week, not for this last year, but the year before uh, in Bimini with folks from Woods Hole and uh, Dr. Greg Skomel for Shark Cam. Um, so you know, in addition to our own research and our own courses, which obviously are the thing that we're the most passionate about. Um, mm -hmm. She also gets to support other researchers work, which is something that I love. Walk me through what a, what do you like a, an excursion with field school? What do you, what is the term that you use for them? If somebody comes down and is taking a week or two on the Garvin and learning about marine science. So we mostly offer courses, uh, they're, they're week long, um, although we do have one research expedition to the Bahamas, um, which is a sperm whale research trip that we do in partnership with the Bahamas Marine Mammal Research Organization. Mm -hmm. um, How many sperm whales do you usually see it, or hear? It varies a lot, but um, we've been quite lucky so far, a, a pretty good number most, most of the time. Um, I mean, and we get to see and hear other things too, um, you know, beaked whales, uh, melon-headed whales dolphins. 
so that's a super cool trip. Um, but And you can tell just by kind of the songs that they're singing which type of whale it is. They all have their own different pitches and tones. Yeah, you can you can definitely tell by the sounds what species you're dealing with. Although um, I, I leave most of the interpretation there up to the experts at BIMRO. But for our own courses, um, they're really built around student learning. So, I mean, that expedition is the chance to join them for their research. It's not a class, um, okay. but our courses are. Uh, and the main ones that we offer are um, tropical marine ecology and um, shark research skills. And the goal there is that if you take our introductory and our advanced shark research skills, you're probably in a reasonable position to join a shark research lab or perform shark research through your university uh, and have some idea what you're doing. Uh, a lot of times, master students don't necessarily get the training and support that would help them do their projects in the best way possible. So one of our mm -hmm. goals is really to do the best we can to collect all the information we can about what represents best practices for handling animals um, and start introducing those to young scientists as soon as possible. So who typically comes on these cruises with you? Most of our students are college age and thinking about grad school or trying to decide whether a career in marine science is right for them. We definitely do have students come out who one of the things they learn on their course is that marine field work is not for them. Uh, you know, I think <laughs> which is valuable in and of itself. Absolutely. One of the things I always tell students is, um, you know, you should treat things that you hate as equally valuable to finding things that you love, because your goal isn't mm -hmm. only to do things in your life that you love. It's to, you know, way find your way to a career that fulfills you mm -hmm. and is rewarding and is valuable. Um, and that means knowing both what you like and what you don't like. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I've had students be like, wait, I have to touch bait to be a shark scientist? And the answer is yes. If you want to be a shark scientist, you probably have to touch bait. How do you usually get your sharks on board? And what do you, are you tagging them? Or are you just kind of just kind of visually seeing what species and measuring them and releasing them kind of what what does a shark introduction look like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it depends a little bit on the size. We have a custom hydraulic platform on the back of the boat that goes down for larger sharks so that they can be um, partially submerged during their workup. Um, mm -hmm. For smaller sharks, we've found that the fastest workup is usually to bring them up on deck. No matter what size they are, they get a PVC pipe attached to a seawater pump in the mouth to help flush water over their gills during their workup. Um, mm -hmm. We want them to obviously be able to breathe and rest during that data collection. And then we take mm -hmm. measurements. We take a small fin clip for genetics work. We take a muscle biopsy um, that's usually used for feeding ecology work. And we put a, a mark recapture tag in them before we let them go. Uh, and that's a pretty small dart tag that has a unique ID number so that if they're recaptured, um, you know, we participate in the NOAA cooperative tagging program. So uh, all of our tag information goes to NOAA, and if they're recaptured, people will report it to NOAA, and NOAA will let us know. Um, and really, before satellite tags, that's how we learned almost everything we know about where sharks go and how quickly they grow and um, all that sort of information is, you know, you put a tag in it, you recapture it a year later. Okay, well, how much has it grown in that time? 
Right. And if where did you catch it the second time? <laughs> and if you're putting out a million tags, um, you know, even quite a low return rate gives you a large data set. You know, we're not putting out sort of the satellite tracking tags that that people think of um, because mostly we're not catching large sharks that can comfortably bear that kind of equipment. Um, right. My main research deals with uh, coastal sharks in the five foot and under range. I mean, you have a myriad of publications and studies that have come out from this. What is one of your favorite or more eye-opening things that you have uncovered during your field school research? Um, we have a study going right now with one of my Master's of Professional Science students at Rasmus, um, mm-hmm. who is looking... Which is the... Which is the Rosenthal, yeah. Rosenthal Marine Science and Atmospheric the School. The Rosenthal at School of Marine and Atmospheric Science at the University of Miami. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, of course. Where yellow stingrays are a small sort of mm-hmm. dinner plate sized, really beautiful little ray. Um, they're fairly abundant in South Florida. We see them often. And there are 22 published papers on them in the world the vast majority of which uh, deal with their anatomy uh, or their strategy for using their um, barb in Mm self-defense or their venom. Um, There's only one published study on their population size in Florida. There's only one published study on their feeding ecology. Um, And so uh, my student's project involves uh, a technique called gastric lavage, which involves washing out their stomachs with seawater so that they basically throw up, they regurgitate whatever's in their stomach um, to study what they're eating without hurting them. Uh, so historically, the way you studied diet in sharks and rays was by catching them and cutting them open and seeing what was in their stomach. Right. Um, but yellow rays are extremely hardy. That gastric lavage does not seem to throw them very much. Um, and we're finding really interesting data on what they eat here in South Florida, which is something that has never been studied before. Cool. So what do they eat? I would assume, you know, mollusks and... So far, mostly uh, polychaete worms and some some small crustaceans, particularly little shrimp. Um, But the data we have so far is all from this summer. So Mm. if there are seasonal changes in diet, we're going to be out there finding out. Very cool. I'm curious to see what you guys come up with. Me too. So what's your favorite part about your job? I really love working with animals. Um, but I have to say my students, I went back to grad school really planning on becoming a research scientist and, you know, Mm -hmm. thinking that conservation relevant research was, was the thing I wanted to do, you know, and my job was just become a good scientist. Um, and when I started mentoring students through the shark research and conservation program, I, I found that, you know, as much as I love science, um, working with students is even more rewarding. And if anything, I, I hope that the the science that I do improves conservation. I hope that the science that I do adds to the world's knowledge a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But if you can influence the way that students think and the way that they treat each other and the way that they approach problems, you can change so much more than what one paper you write is ever going to accomplish. I mean, and also you can imagine sometimes shark science can be stressful. Uh, I've definitely worked with plenty of shark scientists who uh, think that yelling uh, 
is a way to communicate how serious what we do is. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, and and they'll say, you know, it's going to be it's going to be crazy here. And uh, my experience is that calmer is usually better and safer. But I also try to communicate that approach to students. That's really wonderful and refreshing to hear because I've been I I think. Uh, that's a universal trait, particularly when you're on a boat, is that yelling is the preferred method of communication. And it's usually not the most effective way to get things done. <laughs> not on Garvin. It's not. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, and and I think modeling teamwork and collaboration um, mm-hmm. in a really healthy way is is something that I'm sad to say students tell us that they don't see in other places. So um, that's that's mm. something that I'm really proud of. Um, if there's one thing I've done in my career that I feel good about, it's trying to teach students that, you know, if a teacher isn't kind to you, if a teacher doesn't treat you respectfully, that tells you a lot about them as a person. It tells you nothing about you as a student. Mm. Yes, that's good advice. That's true in life in general with anybody, not just teachers. I mean, and I always tell our kids, like, there's literally nothing that you could do that would make me scream at you. My screaming at you would never be an appropriate response, no matter what you did. <laughs> so when somebody does something like that to you, and I think most people will encounter a bad boss, a bad colleague in their careers. Um, right. Just knowing that that's not about you can help make you more right. resilient to some of the negative effects that that kind of behavior can have. Yes. It's encouraging to hear. A couple more questions as we kind of wrap up. Uh, one of my favorite things about working in the field is the amount of stories that you collect. What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And it can be like a field day blooper, like I can't believe this happened and we made it through the day or just like the most epic, beautiful, perfect day ever or something in between. I'll, I guess I'll try to give you both. One that I like because it shows how it tells you something about human ingenuity is I once took a group of students out and the boat hook broke halfway through the day. Mm. And um, it wasn't on Garvin, but the boat we were on did not have a spare on board. Mm. And we had all of these floats out attached to lines that sharks could potentially be on. We, you know, we're not going to go back to shore and leave those animals potentially waiting. Um, right. And so we hooked floats for the rest of the day using a broom, um, which worked about as well as you'd think, but we got the job done. And I think cultivating a can-do attitude, regardless of how wrong things go, because things always go wrong in the field, uh, is something that students can start at any age, really. Yes, Um, can-do and a little bit of uh, MacGyverness. Yeah. And then uh, I've always... So I've had students tell me that, you know, their professors have told them they can't be scientists because they're religious. And that's obviously ridiculous and unacceptable. Um, Yes. And I'm not personally particularly religious, but I I find a certain similar sense of of awe and wonder in nature that I think Mm -hmm. many people find in religion. Um, you know, that sense of being very small, that sense of the infinite, that sense of being part of a larger something. 
Yes. Um, and so when I was out with great whites in South Africa, um, I'm, I'm always someone who roots for the underdog. So it's, it's very hard to watch seals and great whites interact without rooting for the seal, right? You, you, you want it to get away, even as you know, a great white's got to eat. Right. Um, but my first time seeing them, I was just absolutely flooded with this feeling of the rightness of all of it. You know, the rightness mm -hmm. of them hunting and the rightness of the seals trying to get away. And that sort of active interaction generating this incredible diversity of life that we have on our planet, right? Um, they, they evolve in response to each other. They're locked in this incredibly intricate dance that's lasted the entirety of evolution, right? Seals get a little bit faster. Seals get a little bit smarter. Great whites have to do the same, right? Mm -hmm. Move and counter move. And uh, it really just did fill me with this very childish wonder. <laughs> it really is fascinating to see just how interconnected that everything truly is. And nature is just amazing to watch. Yeah. Well, I mean, then one of the things that I hope my kids get out of my classes is, is this idea that everything is connected. You can't move one piece or pull one part out of an ecosystem without having effects that you can't really understand, predict, or control. Right. Do you have any parting words for the audience or advice or words that they should ignore? <laughs> I, I would say in part that there's a lot of different ways to do something that you love. I think mm -hmm. a lot of my students get the feedback from their professors that the way to be, the way to care about sharks, the way to work with sharks is to get a master's degree, get a PhD and be a shark scientist the way that I as an academic professor am. And, you know, there are people who work in outreach and education who will make as much difference for the way people think about sharks as I ever will. There are people who, um, you know, monitor fisheries. There are people who advocate for particular policies. Uh, there are people who work for NGOs, um, all of whom make a difference for sharks. There isn't one way to care about something. There isn't one way to be a success. Um, and it's very tempting and easy to try to take a path that everyone will approve of. That's sort of socially sanctioned. You know, your parents will understand, I'm going to go to grad school in a way that they won't necessarily understand. I want to go spend two years being a dive master in Belize. But there isn't, there isn't a simple, straightforward, one path approach to caring about these issues. And so I guess what I would say is give yourself space and permission to like what you like, to not like what you don't like, to be working on figuring it out. Um, almost all of my students come out with this fear that they're somehow behind that, um, you know, everyone else seems to know what they're doing and have it together. And, you know, I look at their social, you know, their social media tells me that like, everything's great in their life. And I'm like, well, every kid that comes out social says that, <laughs> right. Every kid who comes out right. says, I feel like I'm behind my peers. You can't all be behind your peers. It's not possible. Right. That's not how averages work. <laughs> 
So, you know, give yourself permission to not have it all figured out. I certainly didn't at 18. I certainly didn't at 20. I didn't at 25. Um, and I think that I have a more exciting and fulfilling career now than I would if I had only done the things that seemed, you know, easiest at the time. The more logical next step. Let your life take its own path. Excellent words of wisdom. Catherine, thank you so much for being on the show. Where, if listeners want to, where can they find you and connect with you? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm most active on Instagram in terms of social media. Mm -hmm. uh, and they can find me at Dr. Cat Mac. Um, and, Love it. And they can find Field School on there as well. Um, and they can check out Field School's website at www.getintothefield.com. Fantastic. And I will also put a link in the show notes for anybody that wants to go check things out. Well, this is great, Catherine. Thank you so much for making time to be on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure. And uh, I mean, I make this offer to every student I ever talk to, so I'll make it to your listeners too. If you have a burning question for a marine scientist, feel free to reach out. You can find my email on the website. Hey, listeners. As you know, there's usually an action item at the end of each episode. And today is no different. Before the show, I asked Catherine if she had a specific ask, and this is what she had to say. What I usually tell my students is, is that pretty much the best thing that the average person can do for our oceans is ask more questions about their seafood. Where does it come from? How is it caught? Um, because the, how opaque the seafood process is here is a big part of what allows unsustainable practices to continue. So, it, for instance, in Europe, if you buy a can of sardines, you can tell on that can where those sardines were caught, what boat caught them, and the date that they were caught. Uh, it's not that the technology or the know-how doesn't exist to track seafood. It's that it, when seafood is well-tracked, it becomes a lot more difficult to sort of sneak illegal, unregulated, and unreported fish catch into the legitimate seafood market chain. Uh, and so there are obvious incentives for commercial interests to resist that kind of labeling, um, particularly since that labeling also costs something, you know. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons, one of the things that drives better actions on the part of um, supermarket chains, restaurants, anybody who sells seafood is consumer pressure. And part of that pressure is just asking questions. That's a great ask. I love it. You heard it here. Ask where your seafood comes from. One voice multiplied through a community makes a difference. I have one more action item to add before we wrap up today's episode. As some of you know, earlier this month, the Bahamas were hit by a massive Category 5 tropical cyclone. Hurricane Dorian had wind speeds clocking in over 200 miles per hour. This is equivalent to an F4 tornado, and she sat over the Bahamas for more than a day. To say there is destruction is an understatement. Y'all, it's apoplectic. Not only did these people lose their homes, but their entire infrastructure is completely gone. Basic necessities such as food, gas, and water are in short supply. Volunteers that travel over there do so as self-sufficiently as possible. They're doing hard labor, distributing much-needed supplies, and helping to literally rebuild among the devastation. After a day's work, 
They all bathe in the ocean because water is in too short of supply to take actual showers. If you are able to donate even just a couple of dollars to help the cause, please do. Operation 300, the Global Empowerment Mission, and the Humane Society of Grand Bahamas are just a few of the many organizations that are providing aid to these devastated people. I'll put a link to these organizations as well as everything Catherine and I chatted about in the show notes. Thanks, y'all. And thank you for listening to today's show. As always, I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe. And of course, share with your friends. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please take a moment to subscribe to our channel. It helps other ocean enthusiasts find us. And we'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.